Yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? That was our Hope for Christmas event, and those of you that were around when we did that or we talked about that, that is when we had the amazing opportunity to bless so many families in our communities in Cherokee and Pickens County. And so over 400 kids came out, and we got to bless them with gifts for Christmas, their parents as well, a meal for Christmas. We got to pray for so many families, and it was just an incredible time for our church to bless our communities. And those of you that were able to serve as a part of that, you there, you know how incredible it was. But there were so many of you that didn't get to serve, but you provided gifts and did other things. And so we wanted you to see that as a way to celebrate. And then there's maybe people here that are new that have no idea about what I'm talking about. We just want you to know how much we as a church just love our communities and want to continue to help our communities and then ultimately give them hope for Christmas. That was why the whole thing was titled that. So it's such an incredible thing. And I just wanted to say thank you for being such a generous church and blessing our community like that. And it's something we're going to continue to do year after year. And when I talk about Christmas and this event, Hope for Christmas, is ultimately what Christmas is about. It is about hope. And so not only we want to celebrate that event, but today we're going to talk about how to have hope for Christmas. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter two. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We're going to ask you all to come down front and grab one. It's a total joke. All right. We have it here on the screen. It's our last of five gatherings. You have no idea what you're in for today. Neither do I. And so we're going to have a lot of fun. But Matthew chapter two, we'll have the verses on the screen so you can follow along with us. But if you have a Bible, if you have it on your phone, you can open it up. We're going to look at verses one through 12. And I'm going to read verses one through six first, and then we'll jump into the last part, seven through 12. But before we do that, as always, Let's pray together, all right? Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the amazing opportunity we have to gather together as the church and talk about Christmas. And God, as we literally stand on the eve of Christmas, we want to be reminded about not only the story, but the purpose behind it. And so as we talk about the Christmas story and a story here in Matthew chapter 2, that's very familiar to us. God, I pray that you would speak to us maybe in a new way, in a fresh way. And God, I pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to see and to hear and to understand what this means for us. And then God, I pray that you would help me, empower me to preach this in a way that honors you and is helpful to us because God, we do want to hear from you. That is the goal. And so now as we approach your word, God, we ask you to speak in Jesus' name, amen. So this story in Matthew chapter two, again, uh, lots of parts to the Christmas story. If you've ever been to any kind of Christmas play or heard, you probably have heard different parts of it. And this one probably is no different because it is the story of the wise men coming to see Jesus. And so I'm gonna talk about it and then obviously, uh, hopefully talk about it from a perspective maybe you haven't thought about before. But Matthew chapter two, verses one through six, let me read this. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem, of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and he quotes Micah, 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, again, there's familiar things to this story, and there's things that are important that Matthew highlights in this story that I'm going to bring out. One is the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. Now, if you don't know anything about Bethlehem, you can actually look it up on a map, and it's still there today. It exists about six miles or so south of Jerusalem, and it was in an area, especially then, even some now, where it was outside of the city, and it was, it was more kind of a, a country area. It was a place with some rolling hills. You know, Jerusalem's up, tie, up high on a hill, and you come down off of that in this area of Bethlehem was a place where you would have fields, and they would literally call them shepherd's fields because there would be shepherds there with sheep. And so Bethlehem was kind of a no-name type of place. It's outside the big city. It's uh, not a place that you'd really want to necessarily go to unless you like to hang out with sheep and lambs. And, and this was an area that was kind of country, right? It's kind of out there. So much so that it was a place that seemed like it was forgotten, which is why the Bible talks about this is like, you, you're not little, you're not small. And, and what made Bethlehem first and foremost unique is that's where David, the second king of Israel, who was the most famous king that Israel ever had, was born in Bethlehem. And the Bible made specific prophecies about the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And here's what's amazing to me about the story. Not only did these events happen, but they were prophesied about hundreds and sometimes thousands of years prior to them happening. So the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem was literally a fulfillment of prophecy. But there's also other things about the fact that he was born in Bethlehem that if we don't know what the city was for and its significance, we would miss the biggest significance to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, and to the Jewish people is that Bethlehem raised sheep and lambs that were used as a part of the sacrifice because once a year at Passover, you had to sacrifice a lamb where those lambs came from Bethlehem. In fact, I want to read you a quote or a story uh, a little bit from an author describing the significance of the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Listen to this. It says, on the hills about six miles of south of Jerusalem lay an area, a town called Bethlehem. It was there on those hills sheep grazed, shepherds kept watch, and newborn lambs were chosen and set apart. These distinct lambs born in Bethlehem were predestined to be offered as a Passover sacrifice at the temple. It was only Bethlehem that birthed lambs pure and special enough to be considered worthy of giving their life as a sacrifice to the Lord. Just as the lambs born on the hills of Bethlehem were predestined to be offered as a sacrifice, so too was the most important lamb that ever graced the temple courts. These royal lambs who were handpicked and approved by their shepherds were symbolic of the royal lamb of God who was chosen by the Father, approved as the only one worthy to give his life to save the world. The most fitting birthplace for the son was on the hills among the lambs. The shepherds who kept the royal flocks of Bethlehem weren't your ordinary shepherds either. They too were special and set apart. These unique shepherds were what they called rabbinical or priestly shepherds. They were familiar with the Old Testament writings. They had been educated in the law of Moses. And most importantly, the shepherds were trained with special skills to keep the temple lambs unblemished, perfect and spotless in every way. Immediately following their birth, 
The shepherds would meticulously look over and inspect the lambs, making sure they were flawless and without fault. Now this next part blew me away. The shepherds would then wrap the perfect lambs in swaddling clothes, certifying their birth was a holy birth. This outward physical display of clothes wrapped securely around the lambs meant that they were deemed an acceptable sacrifice. And what of the birth of Jesus? Luke 2 verse 7 says, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Mary took what was available to her, strips of cloths used for the swaddling of little newborn lambs and tightly wrapped them around her baby boy. The perfect lamb born to save the world was swaddled in the exact manner the temple lambs were swaddled. The significance of this act spoke volumes to those who understood what the swaddling represented. The certification of a holy birth. This message woven within the cloth, this one is holy. See, the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem was not an accident. And the fact that he was born in a manger too was not an accident. See, so often we read the story, we hear the story, I'm like, oh, that's sad. They couldn't stay in the inn as if the inn was somehow a holiday inn. And we're like, oh, they had to stay in the manger. That's sad, but it wasn't sad. It was selected by God. And so he was born where he was born, in the time he was born, in the place he was born, in the manner in which he was born, because it all had significance to who he was and what he would do. But there's another element to this story that we need to understand that Matthew tells us that Jesus was also born in the time of Herod the king. Now, there were many different Herods during this time because there was a really a dynasty, a Herodian dynasty. And again, you can go up and look this if you like history or enjoy that kind of thing to where literally different Herods were there during this time. But during that time, there was one in particular that was called Herod the Great, which is to believe to be this king because this one was unlike almost any other because this king was very shrewd, very, very smart knew how to make money, knew how to build stuff, and he was very wicked. In fact, let me just tell you a little bit about Herod the king or Herod the great. See, in this time period, Rome was in charge of most of the known world, and so their military had power literally over most of everything, but what they would do is they would let people kind of be in charge of these areas, and they would kind of keep the order, and if things got too unruly, then the Romans would come in, which is what would happen later. But Herod was what they called the king of Judea, this area that he was in charge of, or the king of the Jews. And he wanted to be impressive. He wanted to impress Caesar. He wanted to impress everybody. So he embarked on what was one of the most ambitious building campaigns of buildings and palaces that has ever been seen in human history. In fact, if you go to Israel today, like I have, and again, hopefully we get to as well uh, in the future, he built things that are still there today. Caesar of Rome, who was, again, the most powerful person on the planet, had one palace, but for Herod, one was not enough. He had nine, nine palaces, literally all over the place. One he built on the top of a mountain called Masada, which is still there today. And this was the one that he would retreat to when the Romans would come in. And it's built so high up on a fortress that you had to walk around it to get there. But thank God they have a trolley. And that's what your boy did. He took a trolley up to the top. 
because ain't nobody got time to walk a mountain like that, all right? But literally on the side of this mountain was his palace. And one thing that was particular about Herod's palaces, how you knew they were his, is they had pools, swimming pools. And he was very, very fond of them. In all nine of his palaces, he would have these just opulent, opulent things. And, and in another event to try to impress Caesar, he built a port that's on the western part of the country on the Mediterranean Sea that's still there today called Caesarea Philippi. He built this amazing port. Again, you can stand there and you can see it. And at this port, there's this incredible work and feats that he did. And just to make it nicer than when people came, he built a theater that seats 4,000 people. I have stood in that theater. It is incredible. And then he wanted to make sure that they had a temple because you couldn't be respectable in Roman world if you didn't have some type of temple to a God. And so he built or rebuilt the temple mount that's in Jerusalem. Solomon had built the first one and then it had been destroyed and then he comes back in at the top of Mount Moriah, cuts literally the top off, flattens it, builds it with even bigger and broader walls that are still in existence today. In fact, if you go to Israel, to the temple mount, that is the one built by this guy. The Wailing Wall or the Western Wall that you may have seen on TV before was built by Herod. These blocks of stone were over 650 tons apiece, and yet they had no cranes or kabotas to get them up there. It's incredible what he was able to do. And this guy, not only was he a builder, but he was a narcissist, I mean, of the highest order. As evil as they come because he was so wicked if anybody threatened him or if he felt threatened by anybody, he would have them killed in a moment's notice. Literally his own sons he had killed so they couldn't overthrow him. He had his wife killed. There was once where a sir, uh, uh, someone within the palace was having her hair done by a slave and they were talking about this king and how they didn't like him and then he had them and their entire families and the entire court killed. When he was going to die, he gave an order to his people to kill thousands of Jews on the day of his death because he knew that they wouldn't cry for him because they hated him, but he wanted them to cry just so that they would be crying on the day he died. That's how vain he was. So now, in this time, these wise men from the East come. And this says wise men, you may have heard them called magi before, and that's because this phrase wise men in Greek is literally the word, anybody wanna guess? Magi, you're so smart. Magi, which sounds very similar to the word magic, and so they could have been magicians or sorcerers. All we know is that they were really important, rich, royal people. And so here they come because they, one, get a conversation with the king, and then two, they say something that was greatly troubling to the king. Because notice what they said. We have come to worship the king of the Jews who has been born. So not Herod, who was the king of the Jews, but one that had been born. 
Well, I just told you Herod was a narcissist who hated anyone who was a threat to him. And so look at what he does, verse seven. It says, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Sure, Herod, right? You see how shrewd he is. You see how cunning he is. You see how he can manipulate things. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, this is another part of the story that's so interesting. These wise men from the east came following a star. Now, there's a lot of people that hear that part of the story and like, I just can't believe that a star would actually be directing somebody. Which, one, I would say humans for millennia have used stars as directions. And now we know that stars aren't stationary, they do move. Our, our, our universe is, con I mean, we are currently spinning. And, and so there's things that happen in unique ways, but people try to prove this scientifically, which I understand that thought process, but I would just like to submit something to you that of deeper theological significance that maybe the way we think about science can't explain. And it's this. In Hebrews chapter one, it says that Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then Jesus said of himself in the gospels that if we didn't praise him, that the rocks would cry out. And then Paul says in Romans chapter eight that the creation is eagerly awaiting for the revealing of the sons of God and they are groaning until that happens. And so I would just like to submit to you that I think that the creation recognized that the creator was there that the creation recognized and was pointing to in the way that it does to say, listen, this one that is born is different. And so if the rocks would cry out, if we wouldn't, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that they would point to the one that created him in a way that even sometimes we don't. And when they see it, it says they had exceedingly great joy. Now, again, it's not uncommon for when someone comes into the presence of a newborn baby to have exceedingly great joy. That's not uncommon. In fact, it's not uncommon for adults to, when we come into the presence of a baby, to start really kind of acting strange, right? I mean, we get down on their level, we start making really demonstrative faces and we start talking in a gibberish that no one understands, not even the baby. Right, we start making these noise like we're, I don't know, uh, you know, like we're, maybe that's speaking in tongues, I, I don't know. And so we start, and what I'm saying is when we come into the presence of a baby, it changes our physiological responses. And, and that's not so odd or weird. In fact, it happened to me today. My daughter and I were driving down into downtown Canton and one of our staff members and his baby were walking and almost honked, but I didn't want to scare him. And then we pulled over and then they came into the same store that we came into and he was holding his young son and he was, you know, we're talking fist bumping that kind of stuff. And then he set him down 
And then he said, no, don't run off. And I was sitting right there. And as soon as he set him down, he walked over to me and did this. I know, right? So of, of course I picked him up and started doing, oh, what's up, buddy? You know, started doing all those things. So it's not uncommon for adults to come into the presence of a baby and be excited and have joy and start acting different. But what is uncommon is what they do next. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It would be very uncommon. In fact, very unusual and borderline insane. Oh, when you say borderline, to fall down and start worshiping a baby. I've seen all kinds of people act all kinds of crazy ways. I have never seen somebody get down on their knees and start worshiping. And saints and babies are, are awesome. They're like saints, right? Until they grow up and you realize they're not quite so saintly. But I've never seen somebody, and if I did see it, I would be like, those people are crazy. And they didn't just fall down and worship. They also opened up gifts, and in these gifts were not pampers diapers or even cloth ones. They were not formula. They were not, you know, clothes. It, it was gold. I don't know about you, but those of us who have had kids, I didn't have that on my registry. <laughs> and I would have flipped out if somebody was like, here's your gold brick. Thank you. <laughs> right? And, and, and like when Lindsay and I got married and we did our wedding registry, and we got 13 toasters and 75 Pyrex boxes. I'm like, that's great. I want cash. <laughs> right? They fell down and worshiped and brought gold and frankincense. And without essential oils today, we wouldn't even know what that was. <laughs> Myrrh. Never seen somebody respond this way to a baby. And here's what I would like to submit to you. It's because they weren't responding to that way because he was a baby. They were responding to him that way because he was a king. See, it is normal to respond to a king like this. It is normal to fall down on your knees into the presence of a king and offer gifts like gold. That is perfectly normal. But see, as Americans... We don't have really a context, honestly, for understanding the gravity of becoming um, into the presence of a king in such a way that we wouldn't even really know how to act because we don't live in a kingdom and we don't have a king. In fact, again, if you know anything about American history, you know that our founders purposely put it into the founding of our country not to have a king. And our founding document called the Constitution doesn't start with I, the king. It starts with we, the what? People, you know it. 
One of the greatest documents created in human history outside of the Bible. And I would argue one of the greatest governments ever created in human history because it is built upon the will of the people, not the will of one man who can go crazy at any second and decide he wants to kill some folk. So when our founders started our country, they intentionally limited the powers of the president. Gave term limits, gave uh, distribution of power. Again, if you know anything about economics or history or government or political science, you understand this. Which is always interesting to me that every four years, it's like we fret over it and and we're trying to vote in a new king. But, But try not to get too politically, I'm just trying to make a point here that in the American psyche of how we live our lives, We struggle, watch this, when we come into the presence of God. Because we treat God far far more democratically because that's how we think, to where we think we can lobby him. And there's only one appropriate response, and that is to fall down and worship him. Because you're in the presence of a king. See, when you're in the presence of the king, you don't say we the people. You don't say I have a voice, I have a vote, I have a right. You say I have nothing. All I have is yours. You are greater, I am lesser. And so it is not uncommon that these wise men responded this way and searched out the king to worship because they understood in a way that we just don't a lot of times how to rightly respond to royalty. Look at verse 12 as well. It says, in being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, I recognize the fact that more than likely God warned them not to go back to Herod because they would have died, and so they go a different way. But I want to point this out. That different way came from an interaction with the divine. See, when you and I come into contact with the divine, we leave different. We leave changed. If we come into contact with the God of all creation, we don't leave the same. We don't go the same way that we used to go. We don't live the same way we used to live. We don't worship the same things we used to worship because my eyes have just seen the king. See, that's what happened to them. But here's what I want us to think about. When it comes to Christmas, There's basically two ways we can respond. We can respond the way of Herod, and he was troubled, or we can respond by the way of the wise men where they were thrilled. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might wanna write this down so you can track with me. We can see Christmas as troubling or as thrilling. Another way I could say it is we can see Christmas as threatening or as thrilling. See, when the king showed up that these wise men worshiped, Herod was threatened. He was greatly troubled. That means distraught. That means chaos had just entered his heart and mind. He was troubled and he felt threatened. You want to know why we, he, 
uh, you know, know, want to know how we know he felt threatened is after they leave, he goes into Judea and has every child two years of age and younger killed. I told you he was crazy. What leads a sane person to make such an insane decision? Narcissism. He was so narcissistic, he couldn't stand the thought of someone else being called king of the Jews and overthrowing him in his kingdom. Now, I pray to God that none of you are like Herod, and you're probably not, but here's what I would want you to think about. Maybe you're not as extreme as Herod, but if you were honest with me and with yourself, the fact of Jesus being a king is still threatening to you. Because if he's the king, if he's the Lord, then that means he gets to call all the shots. That means he deserves all of your worship. That means he deserves everything that you have. That means everything that you are and everything that you have is on the table. I mean, this shows up in no greater way than it comes to our money, right? It's, it's interesting to me that they gave him gold, which is a sign of significance and wealth. And yet, here we are, a bunch of people who have claimed to have come into contact with Jesus, the king, but yet we won't even tithe. And it's because... We want to hang on to control and authority of our lives because Jesus being a king is threatening to our way of life. We ultimately don't want someone else telling us what to do and how to do it. And so if we were honest, Christmas is far more troubling and far more threatening to our way of life than we care to admit. See, there was not only Herod, but there was those who followed Herod. And those who followed Herod, again, you can go look this up historically. Jesus affirmed this in Matthew chapter 8 when he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod and the Herodians. And so the Herodians were a group of people, watch this, they were a political party that was opposed to the ways of Jesus. And so the Herodians were living in the way of Herod. See, Herod was half Jewish and half Greek, and so he was ethnically from that area, but he lived a very Greek lifestyle, as opulent as he could. As I told you, he had nine palaces with nine pools. But there was an entire group of people, an entire segment of society that also lived in the way of Herod. And these Herodians had a way, and it was called the Herodian way. And here's what's even crazier. Modern archaeology has dug up homes from people who lived in this era, and we, and by we I don't mean me because I wasn't on the digs, or I'm talking about humanity, have found out in verifiable ways houses that signified, oh, those were Herodian houses, and then houses that signified, oh, those were Christian houses. You want to know one of the primary ways that historians and archaeologists have found out that this is a Herodian house? This has tripped me out. The houses had a pool. For real. I kid you not. They had pools. You can see pools, especially back then, and even today to some degree, were the signs of, oh, that, that person, that family has wealth. Because they dug a hole in the ground and put water in it. For real. 
You know, it was another way we can tell it was a Herodian house? By their bathrooms. By their bathrooms. And if you go to Israel and there's one place on the south side of the Sea of Galilee where there still exists almost like a, it was a Roman city, a Roman kind of Colosseum type thing where it had public bathrooms. And in these public bathrooms, and here's what's crazy, you can sit in this bathroom. You, there was a water trough that would come by and clean your backside. And so in their houses, they not only had pools, but they had water in their bathrooms to clean them. And today we would call those what? Bidets. See, you know, you fancy. I'll never forget when I was a kid. See, I didn't grow up with a pool, and I thought people who had pools were rich. I mean, you got enough money to dig a hole and put concrete and water in it? Dang. And I'll never forget, and I was an adult when I saw a bidet in someone's bathroom. I walked into the bathroom, and the part where the toilet was, there was more than one toilet. And it was a big kind of open room, and I thought, why is there two? Literally, I asked him, I was like, please tell me y'all don't go together. Because that is weird. That is a level of closeness just I don't think anybody should have. And he's like, no, 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 man, that's a toilet and that's a bidet. What is that? Oh, that's where you sit down and it cleanses you with water. What? And, and I'm, I'm having fun with this, obviously, if you can't tell. But here's what I'm trying to say. Having pools and having bidets is not sinful. That's fine. It's not having the stuff. Because I know friends of mine who have pools and have bidets, and they are very generous. That's not the problem. It's the attitude about them. And see, the Herodians had an attitude that we have pools and therefore we are better. We are in the way of Herod. We're not like those dumb, uneducated people. Follow Jesus, you know, that shepherd. We're, we would call them today elites. Because they got pools and they got bidets. See, there's an attitude that can develop within the human heart that says, I am the king of my own castle, and watch this, I sit on my own throne. Why do we even call it that? There's an attitude that says, outside of your back door, look at my palace with my pool. It even is heated. And swim in it whenever I want. See, that's a sign, right, of significance. And here's all I'm trying to say to you. When a king shows up and demands your total allegiance, that can become threatening to your way of life. Because now that king deserves everything that you have amassed in your own kingdom, including your pools and your bidets. And so more than you and I would care to admit, Christ and Christianity is far more threatening to our way of life than we realize. 
Because the only, listen to me, the only appropriate response to a king is all of me in response to who all of you and to who you are. That's the only appropriate response. But how many people, I've been pastoring for a long time, I have seen that have claimed to come into contact with the divine and yet they don't leave any different. There is no difference in their life because they haven't seen Christmas as thrilling. What do I mean by that? Let me read you a couple lines of a rather famous song called O Holy Night. It goes like this, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, which means it's just getting worse, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul or world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. You want me to sing it to you? Fall on your knees. That's all you're getting, all right? Oh, hear the angel voices. My kids were like, no, 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 don't, no, dad, don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> oh, night divine, oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night divine, oh, night divine. Second verse that we don't always sing says, led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. So led by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from the Orient land. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials born to be our friend. See, Christmas isn't threatening to me if I'm not trying to be my own king. It's thrilling to me when I understand that that king wants to be my friend. See the difference? See, I had a saying when I was growing up, and it would still be true today. My dad can beat up your dad. And I've said it before, and if you've been around here, you've heard all my dad's stories. Big dude, over 6'4", 300 pounds, war size 24 ring, knocked my horse unconscious once. If he could knock my horse unconscious, who's over 1,000 pounds, who the heck are you? Think I'm scared? And see, when I would go deer hunting with him and we'd be walking in the dead of night to our stand or back from our stand, when we would go deer hunting, I was not afraid even though there was wild boars in our presence because my dad could beat a boar. I wasn't scared. But you put me out in those woods by myself, dead gummit, even with a gun, I'm like, whoa. Especially as a young guy, I'll never forget when I hunted by myself at like 11 years old, and Dad, you go this way, I go this way, what? In the middle of night one time, my dad did get attacked by boars, and all I heard was gunshots. Talk about scared. But when my dad was, I was going to say when my dad was in my presence, but better yet, when I was in his, I wasn't afraid. My weary soul could rest because I was in the presence of someone that was greater than any problem that I faced. See, Christmas is thrilling 
when we understand that the king is here. That the king of all creation that controls the wind and the stars is here. See, the reason why Herod was threatened is because Herod didn't want to give up his kingship. And the reason why so many of us are threatened by the way of Jesus is we don't want to give up ours either. As I was studying for this and looking up the Herodian way, I discovered, I did not know this, there is a road in Georgia in Smyrna right by the Brave Stadium called the Herodian Way. Whenever you go see our world champion Braves again next year, drive by and see it. I kid you not. According to Google, it's there. And here's my point. I think a lot of us are living on the Herodian way and we don't even realize it until we are reminded that a king was born and that king demands our worship and we're simply not willing to give it. But if you are willing to see how thrilling it is, then your weary soul can finally find its worth. Because you want to know why Herod and why you and me work so hard to be our own kings? Because we are searching for worth. And we think our soul's worth is caught up in our net worth. That's why we work. Why else would we work so hard? Why else would we not be able to rest because we are trying to earn something beyond a paycheck? But if you can see that the king of all kings counted us worthy enough to be born into this mess so that he could take the punishment for it, there is no greater worth that can be had. Let me read to you out of Hebrews chapter one and two. And you're gonna have to hang with me for a little bit. And I'm gonna do my best not to faint as I read this because it's a lot and I'm gonna get excited. But I want you to understand about this king that we're talking about. Hebrews chapter one says this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here's the verse I referenced earlier. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will never will have no end. 
And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Chapter two. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Listen, church, verse three. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Why God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it is not the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Speaking of Christmas, verse 14, since therefore, The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is your king. Tell me what other story can give your soul worth like the king of kings putting on flesh and becoming a baby so that he could be born to be the sacrifice for the thing that weighs you down. See, the thing about Christmas, you know, we call it the Christmas holiday or happy holidays. And I didn't know this till this week, and I'm honestly kind of embarrassed to admit to you that I didn't know this, but I don't really care because there's things that I learned that I think, man, I feel like I'm dumb for having learned them, but I'm just glad I learned them. But I learned this this week. You know the word holiday, holiday, comes from the old English word, and I've got it here on the screen, and it actually means holy day. I didn't know that. I didn't know that the word holiday, which we use to now describe vacation, is actually a holy day, and the word holy means set apart, 
different. And the reason why Christmas is a holy day is because the Holy One became human and dwelt among us. And wise men and women today still worship him like wise men did back then who are thrilled at the fact that the king of kings became their king and they worship him and they live lives that are different in response to him because they can't get over the fact that their king died for them. See, the cross starts at Christmas and Christmas leads to the cross because God can't die, but flesh can. And so God had to put on flesh to die as a substitute in our place. And he rose again, showing and proving that he has power over it and he took it back because you were worth it. God. Is there a more thrilling thing than that? See, the message of Christmas is simply this. The holy became human so humans could become holy. The holy one, on a holy day, born in a holy way, set apart as the sacrificial lamb so that we who were human, who were of earth and dirt and sin could be made holy. And for those of you that maybe up until this point have found that threatening, I hope and pray today that maybe for the first time you'll find it thrilling. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christmas. There is no story like the story of Jesus. There is no person like Jesus who was born holy, but yet born to die for those that were unholy. And God, what a thrilling thing to have our, <laughs> to have as our friend, as our brother, the King of Kings. And God, I know there are people who still find this story threatening and troubling because if the king is here, then he demands total allegiance and they still want to be kings and queens and lords of their own lives. But God, I pray today that by your grace right now and the power of your spirit, you would open their eyes to see how thrilling it is. And for their soul to finally find its worth and to find its rest. No one looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never had a moment in time in your life where you have come into the realization that the king gave his life for you and where you have fell down and worshiped him and giving him your life in response. 
and therefore making it thrilling, then today that can happen. Because this is a holy moment and the presence of God is here and you can have an encounter with the divine that leads you to change your direction. So if you want to pray and trust Jesus right there where you are, I'm going to lead you in a prayer and you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. You don't have to come down front. This is ultimate between you and God. But if you want to trust Christ and be saved for the first time, you can pray with me. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son in my place to save me. To forgive me. I've never felt a worth like that. Thank you. So would you save me and would you forgive me for my sins? And I make Jesus my king. My Lord. I give you everything. No one looking around or talking. If you just prayed that with me, this is the greatest day of your life. Because now the king is your friend. And you're part of the family of God. You're our brother and sister. And that's why we want to know about it. So if you just prayed to trust Jesus, again, nobody looking around or talking, this isn't about anybody else. But if that was you, would you just simply lift up your hand so we can see that? Just lift it up. Don't be ashamed, man. This is great. Just lift it up. Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around and put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. That's it. Simple. Thank you. And for those of you that just did that in a moment, you have an opportunity to fill out what we call our digital connection card on the seat back in front of you. There's a little QR code. You can scan it. The camera on your phone, it'll take you to a little thing you fill out. We're not going to come to your house, anything like that. We just want to know who you are. But then those of us who have trusted Jesus and then maybe those who just trusted Jesus, I want to encourage you to take some time this Christmas and remind yourself of how thrilling it is that the king came for you. So that when the king commands you to do something, that you and I quit acting like it's a democracy and we just start obeying him. And we start living different because we've encountered the divine. And listen, he's gonna command some things that you're not gonna like. He's going to command you to do some things with your money that is uncomfortable to you. He's going to command you to do your thing, some things in your relationships that you don't like. He's going to command you to live in such a way that the culture would call hateful and backwards and twisted. But if your allegiance is to the king, then your yes has got to be on the table. Because that's the only response that is right. But here's what I can promise you. 
The king will never command you to do anything that is not for your good. So you can trust him. Father, I pray that we would live our lives in proper worship to you. Worship, yes, it involves singing, but it is so much more than singing. It is the response of all that we are in response to all that you have revealed yourself to be. And so we want to appropriately fall on our knees and worship you and be thrilled by the fact that our king would come for us. May we find our worth in who you say we are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.